0: There is a term that uh, I've heard a lot more of lately I don't know how old it is. it's probably a pretty old term, but for some reason it's it's become more and more uh, present in my life, I guess uh, not in my own personal life but in you know things that I encounter social media and other place. It's the term hangry. you all know what the term hangry means? What's the term hangry mean anybody? When when you're so what's that? When the sermon runs too long. Ouch. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's uh it's when you get so hungry that you're angry. Okay. For instance, when the sermon runs long. Very good, Corey, I appreciate that, man. That is greatness. That is greatness. Yeah. Um our bodies need food, right? Now, probably not speaking personally here, probably not as much as we eat, but our bodies need food. And and when we're lacking that, we respond emotionally, physically. It, it becomes almost a desperate situation in some cases. And, and and one of the things I've noticed um over the years is you know, um we'll eat just about anything when we're hungry. I mean when we're really hungry, you know, stuff that was previously eh, I'm not really interested in that, it's suddenly edible. We'll jump into it. Our bodies are so driven by that that um we'll start to make excuses. And that brings me to a quote by C. S. Lewis. C. S. Lewis um, said, spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. And what Lewis is, is simply saying there is, just like we hunger physically, we hunger spiritually. Our, our, our souls, our spirits, our bodies are made for connection with something bigger than we were created in God's image, and because we are created in God's image, we long for that connection. It's built into us. it's a part of our very fabric, our very makeup and so what happens just as with physical food is when we're lacking spiritual food, we'll begin to ingest anything we'll begin to to take in all sorts of things that are that are poisons that are lies that are that we otherwise would have passed by, but because we're so lacking spiritually in being fed, in encountering who God is, we start to accept things. I know many of you here, because I've heard you comment on, have noticed the the the, the cult of personality that we have in our culture here in the U.S., where people who are who are professional athletes or or actors, or whatever. They speak on political matters as if they're experts on those things. And people listen to them. Why? Because, well, because they're actors, and they're, they're famous, and they're other things, and, and we, we make this connection subconsciously that if they're doing well in one area of life, they must be doing well in the other areas of their life as well. We know that realistically not to be true, but we still make that connection so often. Because we're starving for direction, for spiritual connection as a nation. Because of that, we're what? We're going to take in the poisons, we're going to take in the opinions of those who are not grounded in the Word of God. This uh, today we, we start a new series First 1 Samuel called The Throne. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to take a journey through the book of 1 Samuel and look at the reality of, of putting God first in our life, in every aspect of our life. The book of First Samuel is uh, a book uh, about transitions for Israel. They're moving from the period of the judges into the monarchy. They're, married, they're moving from a period of, of being uh, without a nation, without a land, without a, a place to call home, to being grounded, to be secure uh, in uh, the area of, of, of Palestine, of Canaan now. And one of the big struggles that they have during this time is the same struggle we have today. They don't have any spiritual direction. And because they don't have any spiritual direction, they're willing to take in all sorts of poisons, false truths, false false ideas and concepts about who God is and how God operates. We're, we're going to see uh, throughout this, this journey of mistakes made by by kings, by rulers, by, by individuals, primarily because they didn't have God on the throne. In all the discussions of, of give us a king, they forgot the truth that God is king. And it's, it's a truth for us today, for all of our calls for justice, or, or, or mercy, or or clarity, or whatever it is that we're calling for, we forget that in reality, God's the only one who those things. So I want to start today in 1 Samuel 1 with, with by looking at uh, a, a couple, uh, Elkanah and Hannah. And this couple uh, is, uh, is introduced to us uh, by means of the fact that um, they are the parents of Samuel one who gives his name to this book. But what we see very clearly here in this first chapter is a description of what life looks like when God is on the throne, or what life could look like when God is on the throne. And while I don't normally do this, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read this entire chapter today, uh, all 28 verses, so follow along with me if you will, just so you can get a kind of feel for, for what we're talking about in this journey today. It says, there was a man from uh, Ramathaim Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah, and the second, uh, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of the armies at Shiloh where Eli's two sons Hophni and Phinehas were the Lord's priests whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice he always gave portions of meat to his wife Hannah and to each of her sons and daughters but he gave a double portion to Hannah for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. He said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I, I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying for the depth up from the death of my heart, anguish and resentment. Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived, and gave birth to a son. and She named him Samuel, which, because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all her household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, After the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, Do what you think is best and stay here until you weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh as well as the three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood there beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked for him, I will now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage today, God, I pray that you would help us to to grow in our realization, our understanding of exactly what it means, what it looks like when you are indeed on the throne. And Lord, more than that, help us to commit today to to put you on the throne of our lives or to live lives that reflect your authority, your position, your place. We're so grateful to you for all you've done, for all you're doing, for all you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as you, you look at this chapter, as you look at what is recorded here, we, we see some some truths about what life looks like when God is on the throne. And the first truth we see is that worship is a priority. When God is on the throne, worship is a priority. In verse 3, it talks about how this was a, a regular visit for this man and for his, for his wife. And, and not only that, we see as, as the, the, the chapter unfolds that, that these people know exactly how to do it. Now, I want you to, to, to understand some, some truths here that, that are important for us in terms of our excuses for avoiding worship sometimes. I want you to note, first of all, that that this is the period of the Judges. Now, what do we know uh, about the period of the Judges? We know that it was not a very wholesome time in Israel's history. In fact, it was a a troubling time. Three times toward the end of the book of Judges, it says, there was no king in Israel, and every person did what was right in their own eyes. And there are some stories there in the book of Judges that, that just... Break your heart. Cause they caused me even when I teach them on in, in Old Testament survey, they, they, they caused my my stomach to to just churn because they're so awful. The the mistreatment of of, of fellow humans. The the, the complete lack of, of love and compassion and forgiveness and logic and reason and all the things that make us human become very animalistic. And so it's a, it's a very dark, dark period in, in Israel's history. Even the leadership is not what it should be. We we sometimes describe the judges uh, as heroes and so forth. That's not how the book of Judges describes them. The, the last of the judges, Samson, is named after a pagan god and, and never fulfills any of his vows and, and never delivers Israel from their their captivity. It's just a mess. And yet we see here an example of a couple that, while they're not perfect, we'll see this in a moment, are committing to worship. Whatever else they're going to do, they're going to worship. They're going to acknowledge God. Today we have a lot of people around us in our lives, in our experience, that can easily pull us away from the centrality of who God should be in our lives. When God is on the throne, though, worship is a priority despite those people that are around you. It's also a priority despite faulty leadership in the church and elsewhere. One of the things we often hear people say about why they don't go to worship and so forth is because the leadership is corrupt. Preachers, all they want is your money or or any number of things like that. And I can't deny it. There are a lot of corrupt people in the pulpits. And I am a sinner, just like you are. And so the argument has validity on one level, that there is truth, that there is corruption in the pulpits. And yet, here, as a, the passage is, is, is introduced to we're introduced to three individuals, Phineas, Hophni, and Eli. They're the three individuals who are leading in the tabernacle at this time, who are who are a part of the worship, who are the leaders in the worship. And what we know about them, and we'll see about them later on in the narrative, is that they are thieves. They steal from God, they steal from man. They're hypocrites. They're people who lack spiritual insight and knowledge. But that didn't stop Elkanah and Hannah from going to worship. The leadership that was faulty didn't cause them to say, you know what, I guess it's just not worth it worshiping. They realized, they recognized the importance of it. They also worshipped despite the sometimes contradictory nature of it. Part of their journey, part of Hannah's journey, was to to go to the tabernacle each year to make this yearly trek to thank God for his provision. And yet here was Hannah without a child. And a couple times here in the passage it says she, she did not have a child because the Lord kept her from conceiving. That passage there is a reflection upon the absolute sovereignty of God in the the things of man, that God is indeed in control. That's what the writer is trying to communicate there. But it's put in the context of what? A narrative where the people are going to thank God for his provision. There is sometimes in worship, sometimes in our own experience, a, a contradictory nature to what we are expressing. We come to church sometimes hurting deeply, sometimes struggling with whether or not we understand, understand what God's doing in our lives or why He's doing certain things. Things are going on and, and we're wondering, why hasn't God responded or why hasn't God fixed this or why hasn't God moved or, or why hasn't God corrected this reality in my life? And we stand here and we sing, I surrender all and, and God is good. and how great is our God, and and all these other things. There's a contradictory nature to it that doesn't invalidate it. It pushes it all the more. Because if we're not going to find answers in worship of the true God, then we're going to find answers elsewhere that are lies. So this is exactly where we need to be in the midst of that grief, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that hurt. And we make worship a priority despite the fact that life doesn't always go the way we think it should. If your only purpose in worshiping God is what you might get out of it, then you're misunderstanding the nature, nature of worship. Worship at its heart is first and foremost an acknowledgement of God's worth. That's what the word means. To ascribe worth. And so, first and foremost, our time of worship together is to acknowledge His presence, His place, His position in our life. It's to give us a a mode of operation, a mode of thinking, a a reconfiguring of our priorities and our hearts, so that we put Him first on the throne. This is a The the truth about worship is that when God's on the throne, worship is a priority, and when worship is a priority, God will then be on the throne. It feeds itself. It builds itself together. Those two truths build up together to to help us to become healthier and, and to be able to experience God on the throne in every aspect of our life, not just in specific times of worship, but in every aspect. second truth about when God is on the throne is that when God is on the throne, we can see the positive in the pain. Pain is real. And this passage acknowledges pain is real. Hannah is being provoked, being persecuted, being laughed at, being ridiculed by the other wife because the other wife is able to have Multiple children, and Hannah can't have any. And the text says to us repeatedly that it was—it's a bitterness in her heart. It's—it's a, it's a grieving reality. And it talks about how she would she would weep, and she would be so aggrieved that she wouldn't even be able to eat. And yet. She keeps praying to the Lord. She keeps going to God. She keeps meeting with Him, encountering Him. And we find in this passage, in this expression, that her, as she prays and as she worships, her countenance begins to change. Her outlook begins to change. Why? Because she's met God. And He Himself is sufficient. The New Testament writers repeatedly say consider it pure joy when you encounter diverse types of persecution or diverse types of hardship. hard. That's odd. Psalm one nineteen seventy one says, it is good for me that I went, that I was afflicted, that I might learn more of who you are. Part of Hannah's journey here is a journey that, that is discovering more about who God is. More about what God can do more about how God relates and sees the individual, more about the fact that we are not alone in this journey. Though she feels alone, though she feels abandoned, though she feels betrayed in some ways, she comes to the realization repeatedly that God alone is her answer. And she finds peace in that. She finds rest in that. She finds hope in that. She finds purpose in that. Even before the situation is, quote, fixed with a child, she has found wholeness, completeness in who God is. And so even the pain we experience, the diverse hardships we go through, can be a source of joy because it is that pain is that broken road, it is that hurt that leads us to once again the hands of the Father the embrace of our God third when God is on the throne we can avoid mistakes that cause hurt (laughs) in this passage you see um some mistakes made on behalf of the husband. Okay. Two mistakes, in fact, in Elhanan, and both of these mistakes grow out of not acknowledging God on the throne. The first mistake is his stupid comment in verse eight. Okay, this is one of those comments that you have to that you hear you read, and you're like, dude, are you really that dense? Are you really that dense? He says what? He says, why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Okay. Now, I'm sure Hannah loved Elkanah. I'm sure that that there was some connection there that was significant and meaningful and helpful to her on multiple levels. But one of the things that he is neglecting here is the truth that God has set up from the very beginning from creation. That part of the marital relationship, part of the intimate connection between husband and wife means we bear each other's hurts. We walk with each other through that sorrow. We empathize. We sympathize. And I'm guilty of this as much as Elkanah is sometimes just diminishing the hurts of my spouse. Why can't she just get over it? Aren't I enough? <laughs> Aren't I enough? I'm a pretty good husband. or So I think. But we're not acknowledging the real depth of hurt. He's not seeing. The fact that his other wife is ridiculing and and persecuting so so-called his favorite wife. Okay. Which is the second problem that is evident in this text. And that's the fact that he had two wives. Despite the fact that the scriptures are clear in terms of how God set things up, back in Genesis, one man one woman, for life. That's the ideal. That's the standard. That's what God has established. You say, yeah, but but, Pastor Tim, there's, there's lots of examples of men having more than one wife in the Bible. You got, you got Abraham, you got Jacob, you got, you know, possibly Moses, there's some discussion there if he had two wives because of the description of two, uh, of his wife in places that don't necessarily match up not completely clear but possibly you have David you have Solomon multiple people have one wife more than one wife and never do you find God say why do you have more than one wife that's evil there's not a passage that talks about it or is there this is one of those places in scripture where consequences speak louder than specific judgment. There's different ways that God expresses his displeasure with an entity, with a, a an institution, an action. One is through overt, you have sinned against me, therefore I'm going to judge you for that. But I think the more common way is by simply letting the consequences of such decisions play out. And I simply want to ask you, in all the examples of multiple wives in Scripture, is there a single one that you look at and say, that worked out well. That looked like a good plan. And they certainly have a healthy relationship going on there. There's not. There's not a single example of it. And so sometimes God simply speaks through consequences. He says, I've shown you the way. I've given you the model, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life. Jesus repeats that in in Matthew 19. A lot of times people ask, why didn't Jesus go into more detail with his expectations of marriage? Because he said all he had to say was one man, one woman for life. That's the way it's been from the beginning. That's the way it should continue till the end. What else does Jesus have to say about marriage? The consequences repeatedly speak to the wrongness of this. And what do you have here? You have these two wives. One who is ridiculing, hurting, damaging the other. Why? Because that's the nature of humanity. There are certain things that were meant for oneness. Our relationship with God and our relationship with our spouse. We weren't built to be able to handle any other form of that relationship. And it's always damaging when it takes place. Fourth, when God is on the throne, we pray differently. There's no dry, lifeless prayer here on the lips of Hannah. All you see is what? Passion. Pain. Complete and total submission. And the first time in Scripture, here in this chapter, that the the phrase Lord of hosts is used. Lord of angel armies. This is the first time. Which is interesting given the Exodus, Joshua leading the people there and so forth. But this is the first time that Yahweh, that God is described as the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of hosts. And I think there's a a theological significance there that she's what? She acknowledges that God is fighting for her. He's fighting on my behalf. He sees my situation, and he is standing up beside me. The name became associated with this location, with this place. If you look back at verse 3, you have that allusion here. They went to worship, to sacrifice at the Lord of Armies, Shiloh. Grows right out of this relationship. Now, one of the questions that automatically arises when we see, when we read this prayer and, and read what's here is is this bargaining that she's doing here? Because we've all been told I preached it myself. That whole bargaining. God, if you do this, this, and this, then I'll do that. Right? We've been told that's not how we should be praying. Because that sort of prayer lacks trust. That sort of prayer assumes God needs something from us when he doesn't. That sort of prayer is embedded in some concept that we can manipulate God when we can't. How many times do we find ourselves praying that prayer, and then God answers the prayer, and then the next words out of our mouth are God, you, you know I didn't really mean that. You're not really gonna hold me that that bargain, right? You know, you're not really gonna hold me to that promise. Is that what's going on here? Is this is this a bargaining on her half? And and, and I, I'm gonna say it's not. I'm gonna say it's not for a couple reasons. It's not, number one, because she recognizes that any child that would be born out of the situation she finds herself in and through the intervention of God could only, only belong to the Lord. There's no other way to understand in her mind what that child, who that child would belong to than that it belonged to God. So it's not a bargaining in the terms of I'm going to give you something that was mine to thank you for what you've done here. It's more in terms of what? A recognition, the child that's conceived is already yours. I'm giving him to you, not as me sacrificing to you, but as a recognition that the child was always yours. And I think that's a key difference in in how we pray, key difference in the whole, idea of bargaining, as it were. Are we trying to give something, God, that we think belongs to us, and we think we're making some sort of fair trade, or are we acknowledging something that's already His and just saying, if this plays out this way, God, it's already yours anyway. That's a a big difference. Also, I I think the very fact that she followed through on this promise, this big promise, tells us this isn't a bargain. This is a heart cry. There's no altering, there's no wavering, there's no changing at any time in what she says or what she has to do. She doesn't up the ante, as it were. You know, God, I'll, I'll give you my child and 10,000 shekels or whatever. She doesn't up the ante she doesn't keep building it. She simply lays it before God and says, any child that's born in this environment, in this situation, has to be yours. And so I'm going to give them to yours, to you. And then the vow that's uttered, that his hair will no longer, will never be cut, that's, that's embedded in the Levitical law, actually, the book of Numbers, the laws of the Nazarite. Samuel was likely a Nazarite. All of these things reveal that this is, this is not a bargaining chip between the woman, between Hannah and God. This is a conversation of deep pain, but also deep recognition of God's provision and God's place. And what happens? The fifth thing, when God is on the throne, we are heard by God. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The prayer of the righteous person, accomplishes much. Notice that important adjective, righteous person. What's that? That's a person who is in right relationship with God. That's a person who has God on the throne. That is the person who is going to accomplish much through the prayer. We get the first glimpses here in chapter 1 of Eli's lack of understanding of who God is his accusation that she's drunk. He doesn't even, he doesn't have the spiritual discernment to know what's truly going on there. And then after she reveals him, he basically just dismisses her. Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your request. It's its almost for him like a business transaction. You know, you go to Chick-fil-A, and um, you say thank you, and what do they say? My pleasure. Every single time. Now, the first couple times you hear it, you're like, okay, that's great. It's their pleasure. I feel appreciated. But let's be honest. After a while, you're like, it sounded very businesslike. Okay? Not to say that they're they're not doing right. They have the best, in my opinion, they have some of the best employees of any business out there. But what I'm saying is is that sometimes pastors are the same way well I'll pray for you let me put myself on the spot first of all no when I say I'm gonna pray for you and one I pray right there even if I don't if I'm not able to stop and actually interact with you in that way because time constraints or whatever I pray right there immediately so that I'm faithful to my word but I continue to do it Head as well, but I can't let's be honest. Sometimes you hear that from a preacher, so many times I'll pray for you like Does he? Does he not? Okay. Eli here seems to be saying what he's supposed to say as a priest go in peace and may God be with you. Especially in light of what we know and what follows, he's not a righteous man, he doesn't understand things, he misunderstands. But Hannah is heard. She names the child Samuel. Now, the text here says that she named the child Samuel because she asked of God. Now, you would think that Samuel then has some sort of connection to asking. Because that's usually how things work in the Hebrew language so forth. But, the name Samuel doesn't have anything to do with asking. The name, the only name really in this whole book that has to do with asking is Saul. Saul means to ask. So why does she say this about Samuel? It probably is a play on the word Shema'el. Even though that's not what his name technically is, she's playing off of the sound of it. Shema'el means heard by God. So I asked and I was heard by God. That's a reflection of her righteousness. That's a reflection of her standing. And that's something that we too can experience when God is on the throne. Because why? We're going to be praying things that he would have us pray. And finally, when God is on the throne, we can keep difficult promises. had to think that was a difficult promise to keep I'm going to dedicate I'm going to give my child to you God because she spends those days those months weaning Samuel connecting with Samuel watching Samuel grow even just a little bit and then she has to do what go and give him to the tabernacle Why? How could she do that? Because God is on the throne and he's good. And she trusted that if he's good enough to give me the child he's good enough to watch over this child. And in our lives, in our experiences we need to trust that God is on the throne in such a way that we trust Him with the whole of our needs. It's too easy, too often for us to to say to take something to God and say, God, take this but I'll take care of this part of it. And we leave, we keep something back. Why? For protection, for our hearts, for our minds, for our our outlooks. If I don't give that to God, then He can't fail me in that. And if He can't fail me in that, then I'll continue to believe in God. And that's really not trusting God. That's gambling. We'll give Him what we can, or we're willing to, but we'll hold back the stuff to keep us safe. When God is on the throne, He gets everything. And we take it all to Him. And I understand how hard that is. I struggle with it too. I struggle with the reality of truly giving God everything. Instead of trying to plan my way through something or work my way through something or put in the extra hours on something or whatever, God has called us to trust Him. And if we're going to live lives of victory, of power, if we're going to pray differently, if we're going to be heard by God, if we're going to experience true worship, if we're going to be able to deal with pain in a way that sees the positive, then God has to be on the throne. Not with us sitting beside Him, but Him alone in that position. Him alone making the decisions. God didn't ask to be our president that we vote for. God has demanded to be our king who rules every part of our life. And if he's not king of everything, he's not king of anything. We must surrender all we are to the one who sits on the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, the time of invitation. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to those parts of our lives that are not fully given to you. Those things that we're holding on to. Those things that we're reserving for safety's sake. And Lord, help us to realize that until we've given you everything, we haven't really given you anything. And that our trust Our life, our experience in you is founded in total surrender, dying to ourselves. We place our lives in your hands. God, I pray if there's decisions that need to be made public here today, united with our church or surrendering to ministry or or some other commitment, God, I pray that you would move in such a way that we would respond. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not experienced the joy, the life, the wholeness that comes in surrendering their life to you, that you would draw and that they would respond in faith. God, I I mostly pray based upon the message this morning, that you would help us as believers, myself included, to be able to, to recognize and to give you everything we are, to fully surrender to you. Those fears and those hang ups and those things that hold us back, God, that we release those and live in your power, in your presence. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.